0: Good morning. Thanks, Ben, for leading us in worship. Welcome to Trinity. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here, and this morning it's going to be my privilege to lead us in our study of God's Word. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you this morning, I would invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We will be in verses 53 through 58 this morning. Matthew 13, 53 through 58. Here at Trinity, we love God's Word. We believe it is how God speaks to us. It's how we know who He is. It's how we know who we truly are and how we should relate to Him. So we spend the bulk of our time on Sunday mornings studying the Word together. We open it up. We go verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, looking at the Word in its context, trying to understand what it meant to the original audience who read it, and then apply those truths to our lives Today, and right now, that has us on a journey through Matthew's gospel, reading about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're going to be in 13, 53 through 58, closing chapter 13, closing a series recently of parables that we've seen Jesus teaching to the people. And this morning's going to be a change. This morning is a change in scenery. It's a change in topic, but it's going to have a lot to say to us in our lives today. When people have watched you grow up, they tend to see you differently. When people have watched you grow up from when you were really, really small, they tend to see you differently even as an adult. As an example of this, I want to talk to you this morning about my friend Jeremy. So when Heather and I were in college uh, at a small Southern Baptist church in South Louisville, mostly older congregation, pretty traditional church, um, there were probably six or seven of us in the college age group at the church that we would have Sunday school together and we'd kind of hang out, go out a lot after Sunday morning service or Wednesday night Bible study. And there were these two little old ladies in the church named Anna and Dottie. And Anna and Dottie basically adopted us as the college group. Like they would always make sure to come and and chat with us. They would often have us over to their house for lunch. Um, And so they kind of made themselves the honorary grandmas of the the college and, and career age group. And most of us in this group didn't grow up in the church. Most of us moved to Louisville to go to school, whether that was at, at the seminary or even at, at U of L. Um, but most of us in this group didn't grow up in this church. And so Anna and Dottie saw us the only way they knew us, as young adults, as you know, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-olds. And so they would talk to us and treat us like young adults. They would strike up conversations and they would have us over and, and we would chat. But then there was my friend Jeremy, who was part of the group. And Jeremy was the one person in the group who had gone to this church since he was a tiny little kid. He had grown up in the church. And so Anna and Dottie, we, we, we used to crack up. They saw him differently than they saw the rest of us. Like, they talked to him. They treated him like he was 12, Like he was like, you know, a kid who escaped from the kid's table and was hanging out with the adults for an afternoon. Like they would treat him differently than they treated the rest of us. Now he was the same age as the rest of us. There was nothing about him that would mark him as any different than any of the rest of us. He didn't stand out. He didn't have a particularly young look or anything like that. But when they had us over for lunch, they would treat him almost subconsciously differently. Like the rest of us were DJ, Heather, Kenny, Josh. But Jeremy wasn't Jeremy. Jeremy was little Jimmy. They called him... Little Jimmy, which isn't even his name, but it was like, you know, they'd come out, hey, what, they're fixing lunch. What do you guys want to drink? What's Little Jimmy want to drink? Like, He's the same age as the rest of us, and his name isn't even Jimmy. But because they knew him when he was Little Jeremy, and that got translated to Little Jimmy, they treated him differently. Even as a 20-year-old, they viewed him differently than they did the rest of us. When we've seen someone grow up, when we're familiar with them, we tend to view them differently. And sometimes because of that, we'll treat them differently because we treat people based on the way that we view their identity. In our text today, Jesus comes back to his hometown. Jesus comes back to a place where he's not the preacher, he's not the healer, he's not the miracle worker, he's just the carpenter's kid. He's the one that they know, that they're familiar with, that they saw when he was just this high. And because of that, the people in his hometown are going to see him differently. And they're going to miss, because of that, the joy that Jesus came to bring him. They're going to see him differently, and they're going to respond to him differently than some of the other crowds because of the way they view his identity and the way that they respond serves to warn us this morning against making a very similar mistake. We might not think we're in danger of falling into the same category, but it would be easier for us than we might imagine to slip into the same mistake and miss the wonder and the glory and the joy that Jesus came to bring. So let's look together at Matthew 13, and we're going to read verses 53 through 58 together. It says, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray and we'll study it together. God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you this morning asking you to open our eyes to see your word clearly. Father, as we study it this morning, We ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you'd give us. Father, what we are not, you would make us. Work in our hearts by the power of your spirit. Change us to your glory. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. All right, so as I mentioned at the beginning, over the past month or so, we've worked our way through chapter 13. We've worked our way through the series of parables that Jesus taught over the course of the chapter. And we get clued in right here at the, off the gate in verse 53. That series of parables has come to an end, right? And when Jesus had finished these parables. So Jesus has closed this, this chapter of teaching. And not only has he closed this chapter of teaching, but he's on the move. He's moving away from Capernaum, which has kind of been his home base for his ministry so far. Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. And he's headed to his hometown, right? He went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue. And we know from elsewhere in the Gospels, his hometown is Nazareth. Nazareth is not a bustling metropolis. It is not the big city. It is not a cosmopolitan region. It's the exact opposite of all of those things. It's a backwater, nowhere town. It's the type of town where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came, except in this case when they end up not being glad you came. But they know Jesus. This is a town where everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody's business. And nothing, nothing is secret. Nobody is anonymous. And so Jesus returns to Nazareth and would have been a familiar face to the people who came out to see him. And this is his first return to Nazareth that we have documented in the Gospels since he left way back in Matthew chapter 4. So in Matthew 4, he leaves there after his temptation in the wilderness, and he sets off and he starts his public ministry. And as far as Matthew has recorded for us, he hasn't been back since. And so this is a familiar face returning to his hometown very differently than he left it. A lot has happened in the last nine chapters of Matthew's gospel. Jesus has started this public ministry. He's been working miracles. He's been astonishing people with his teaching. We've heard the Sermon on the Mount. We've heard the parables. We've seen the the paralyzed man walk. We've seen the dead raised to life. The people in Nazareth haven't seen this, though. They've heard about it, but now he's returning home for the first time, and they're getting their first chance to see Jesus with new eyes. But what we're going to see in the text here is that they actually end up seeing him with old eyes and missing out on the reality of who he is. Now, at first, things appear to go the same way that they've gone at every other stop Jesus has made, right? Verse 54: Coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. They're astonished, right? This is good. This is how everybody's been reacting to Jesus when he starts to teach. When he starts to work miracles, people's jaws hit the floor because it's not what they're used to, right? They had had teaching in their synagogues, but not like this. Jesus teaches as one with authority. That's the common refrain that we get throughout the gospels. When he teaches, they said, this is not like our, our scribes. This is not like the Pharisees. He talks like he has some authority behind what he's teaching. And they're in awe of his mighty works as well, of the miracles that he's been performing around the countryside. They' are in awe of his wisdom and his mighty works. Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Now what's the common denominator between the wisdom of Jesus' preaching and the mighty works, the miracles that he's performed? both are marks of his divine authority. Both his wisdom And his miracles, as we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel, serve to establish his divine authority. That he comes from God. He's no mere teacher, no mere rabbi, no mere scribe. There's something foundationally and fundamentally different about him. So his teachings strike them. Where did he get this wisdom? It carries this authority, not the dry repetition of the scribes. And we see this has happened elsewhere as Jesus has gone throughout Matthew's gospel. Matthew 7, 28, and 29, and when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. This is the Sermon on the Mount that he's just closed. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. As Jesus has taught, people say he's unlike any teacher we've ever heard. He speaks of God and God's words like he has authority with him, not like someone who's just repeating what somebody else already said. So Jesus' divine authority has been established throughout his teaching and his preaching in his earthly ministry. And the same thing happens here at Nazareth. They're astonished at his wisdom. Where did he get this? And then they also are astonished by his mighty works, by the miracles that he's performed. Now, it's, inter- it's, it's important to point out here, when it says, where did he get this wisdom and these mighty works? It's most likely they haven't seen the miracles, right? The way that, that Hebrew synagogue worship was set up, Jesus was teaching in their synagogue, we're told, but he wouldn't have been stopping morning worship to do a miracle, Right? He wouldn't have been doing that in the context of the synagogue worship. So when they talk about his mighty works, at this point, and Luke's gospel makes this even more clear, we'll get into that more in a minute, at this point, they're talking about what they've heard about. They haven't exactly seen these miracles, but they've heard all the stories, right? They've heard so many stories that they know they're not just making this stuff up. Like This guy's been doing something remarkable and something that people haven't been able to explain or dismiss. And we've seen that people have reacted and responded, and Jesus has made a point of saying his miracles, his mighty works, are also, like his teaching, to show his divine authority, to show that he has an authority that is beyond mere human ability. Remember back to the story in Matthew 9, verses 6 through 8, when Jesus heals the paralyzed man, and he says to the onlookers who were skeptical about that ability, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. So to understand this passage correctly, to understand where we're about to go through their response to Jesus, we have to get this firm in our heads about authority. They marvel at his wisdom, his teaching, which was a demonstration of his divine authority. They marvel at his miracles, at his mighty works, which are a demonstration of his divine authority. The two things that catch their eye are the two things that were given by God as marks to show the people and to trigger something in their heads to say, there's something going on with this guy that's bigger than any mere human being. No mere man could do these things, could teach like this. There's something different. So when Jesus teaches in the synagogue in Nazareth, the response out of the gate is exactly what we're used to seeing so far. They're tracking right along with what the people in Capernaum had tracked. Right? They were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? It's an appropriate reaction to what they've seen, to what they've heard about. But they're not just thinking about his wisdom and his mighty works. They're also wondering where on earth he got them from. Because remember, he's not walking into a clean slate. He's walking into a town full of people who know him, who remember little Jesus, who remember the carpenter's son, Mary's kid. And they look at Jesus and they see him like they remember him. And they're unable to square that with this new reality, with this new Jesus who's standing before him, with his wisdom, with his mighty works. So they say, where did this man get these wisdom and his mighty works? But then they start asking other questions. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph, Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? So they start talking about his family. They start out, isn't he the carpenter's son? Now, we don't know for certain, but this kind of keeps in line with other references to Joseph or lacks of references to Joseph throughout the Gospels In, in suggesting that Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, is probably dead at this stage. If he was still with them, they would have probably said, is not his father, Joseph? But instead, it's, isn't he the carpenter's son? So Jesus' father, earthly father, Joseph, has probably died at this point, but the people know everybody else in the family really well, right? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't those his brothers over there, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas? They're all off, grown up, doing their own thing. And aren't all his sisters, like, here with us? So they bring up his family to show, we know this guy. We know who he is. We know where he comes from. From an earthly perspective, they knew Jesus as well as anyone who had heard or seen him during his earthly ministry. From a purely earthly, worldly, human perspective, they knew him better than anyone he'd spoken to so far, better than the disciples, better than the crowds in Capernaum, better than the people who he had healed or performed miracles for, they knew him inside and out. But what we see here is they don't know him fully. We see a case of incomplete identity. A case of incomplete identity. They know him, they think they've got him summed up, but really they're missing a crucial part of the equation. And where it gets tricky is they don't necessarily have him wrong. In all these questions that they're asking, everything that they're saying is completely accurate. It's completely true. He was the carpenter's son from an earthly point of view. His mother was called Mary. His brothers were James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. His sisters were living among them. From an earthly perspective, they knew Jesus as well as anyone could. The problem is that there was more to Jesus than just the earthly perspective. There was more to Jesus than what mere human eyes could see and behold. That's why John opens his gospel the way he does. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side, he has made him known. John, in telling his gospel, goes right from zero to 60 out of the gate to say, This Jesus I'm about to tell you about is more than just a mere man. He was in the beginning, He was at the Father's side. He has made God known to us in a way that no one in the history of the world ever has or ever will. He is unique, He is divine. Colossians 1, 15-17 continues this theme later on as Paul is introducing Jesus to the Gentiles. And he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him All things hold together. The people at Nazareth knew Jesus as well as anyone knew him from an earthly perspective. The problem is they limited their assessment of him to merely an earthly perspective. They saw him as only the carpenter's son, only Mary's kid, only the brother of James and and Simon and Judas, only the one with these sisters. They saw him only in human terms. And because of that, they miss him entirely. They get him all wrong. You see, in a tragic twist of irony, the question that they're asking back in verse 54 is actually the right question. They're tracking right where they need to be going. They're astonished and they say, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? They're asking the perfect question. Because there's no earthly explanation for it, and they are uniquely equipped to see that clearer than anybody else. We know exactly who he is. We know exactly where he's from. He left here a year ago and came back, and he's saying this. It doesn't make any sense. Where did he get this stuff? But tragically, instead of that question drawing their eyes heavenward, it ends up cutting them off from understanding Jesus as he truly is. They end up driving and being driven away from him rather than this question taking them in the direction that it should go because their case of incomplete identity leads to a case of insufficient worship. We respond to Jesus based on the way that we understand him. And they understand him wrong, and it causes them to respond to him in the wrong way. Verse 57 tells us their response in no uncertain terms, right? It's not this the carpenter's son, mother called Mary, brothers, sisters, where then did this man get all these things? Perfect question, and they took offense at him. They took offense at him. The word here for take offense is the Greek skandalizo which is where we get our English word scandal, scandalize. They were scandalized by him. They were tripped up by him, shocked, offended, right? He's making himself out to have authority, to have divine authority. But who does he think he is? We know who he is. He's the carpenter's kid. He's Mary's son, and they take offense, right? Right? Who do you think you are? Whenever you see or are interacting with somebody who tends to to have a little bit of an inflated view of themselves, that's the question you ask, right? Who does this person think he is? That's their response to Jesus. That's their response to the mighty works. That's their response to the teaching with authority. They see someone who has no right to say the things that he's saying. No right to do the things that he's doing. They look at Jesus and they don't see Jesus. They see little Jimmy. And it doesn't compute, it doesn't line up. They think they've got him all sized up and he's just like them. And so when they hear the wisdom, when they hear about the miracles, they assume he's just blowing smoke. Right? Where did he get this stuff? He's no rabbi. He's not educated. He's a carpenter's kid. He made my dining room table. Why should I listen to the things that he said? Where does he think he got this stuff? Who does he think he is? Because they're convinced that he's just like them. They're convinced that they don't need to listen to what he has to say. And so they're offended. They're scandalized. And in response to their rejection... Jesus quotes to them what seems to be a familiar proverb that they would already have known and understood. Right? They took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household." So this phrase, "A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household," was likely a proverbial statement that people would have already been familiar with. It's probably not something that Jesus just made up off the top of his head. He's he's kind of driving them to think and examine their unbelief, and where it comes from. And so he says, you you need to understand the reason that you're rejecting me. The reason that you're dismissing me is because you think you know me, but you really don't. You have an incomplete grasp of who I am. And in response to their unbelief, we're told in verse 58, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So he doesn't do many miracles in his hometown. He breaks from his pattern in Capernaum where he's healing, where he's calming seas, calming storms, raising the dead, doing all these amazing things. He comes to Capernaum, and what does he do? Not much. He didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Now the question is why? Why does Jesus, because of their unbelief, not do many miracles? Is this like, I'm going to take my ball and go home? I'll show you. And, and so you came to see a bunch of miracles and now I'm just going to stick it to you guys. You know, you, 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 you knew me back then, but I told you, wait till you see me one day. I mean, this isn't that. This isn't some pride puffed up Jesus wanting to stick it to these people who don't respect him. No, the reason for the lack of miracles here is actually very similar to the lack of a sign that he performed for the Pharisees a few chapters ago. Remember the Pharisees who were skeptical of Jesus, who viewed him in merely human terms, who were offended by him, who were scandalized by him, they came to Jesus and they requested a sign back in Matthew chapter 12. He said, you know, teacher, give us a sign, perform a sign for us that you are from God. And what did Jesus say they were gonna get? He said, you're gonna get the sign of Jonah because just as he was three days in the belly of the earth, so the son of man, or three days in the belly of the fish, So the son of man is going to be three days in the belly of the earth. That's the only sign you're going to be getting. And he chastises the Pharisees because they ask for a sign when they've seen so much. And they've dismissed the signs that are right in front of him. He cuts to the core of their pride and he's doing the same thing to these people in his hometown. This is a refusal to give them the signs they say they want in the midst of of their proud rejection of the ones they've already been given. Luke's expanded account of this interchange spells this out in more detail. If you have some time this afternoon, maybe hop over to Luke chapter 4. And in the second half of Luke chapter 4, we get this same story. But Luke spends a little bit more time and digs a little bit more into the details of it. In Luke 4.23, he gives Jesus' direct response to the people this way. He says, And Jesus said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So, from that, we see that the people of Nazareth kind of have this attitude of show me, right? All right, Jesus, we've heard you did lots of miracles in Capernaum. Let's see what you got. You want us to believe you? Put up or shut up. And just as Jesus wasn't interested in dancing to the Pharisees' drum, He's not particularly interested in dancing to theirs either. Both of them well from the same point, from pride and unbelief. And Jesus says, I'm not going to play that game. Right? He's already taught in a way that left them astonished, and they're dismissing that out of hand. And they want more. They want a sign. They're making a different version of the same mistake that the Pharisees did, and Jesus is not interested in meeting them in that proud unbelieving skepticism. And so he did not do many mighty works there. They don't see the miracles that they saw in Capernaum. They don't see the miracles that some of the Gentiles saw from Jesus. When he's in the region of the Gerasenes, and he casts out the demon of the guy who lived among the tombs. In Luke's gospel, he makes that point even more explicit in saying, hey, just like that, people are going to come from all over the place. At Abraham's table in the new heavens and the new earth. But many of you who think you're on the inside are going to be left out. They have a case of incomplete identity. They don't see Jesus for who he really is. They have only a piece of the picture. And because of that, they don't respond to him with the worship that they should. They don't understand his grandeur, his glory, his divine authority. They see only The human side they see only little Jimmy and they treat him accordingly so that's what's going on in our text that's what's going on in verses 53 through 58 so having understood what's going on in the context in which we find it now we come to the so what what does it mean for us remember God's word is never just static information Even a text like this that doesn't have any commands, it doesn't have any thou shalt ABC. It's information, but it's information driven or given to drive us to a purpose, to action, to a response. So we have to ask ourselves, what do we do with this text? What is the principle that we should find here that we can then apply to our own lives? Well, back when we got started, I mentioned that the people of Jesus' hometown served as an example to us. They serve as a warning for us, a warning against making the same mistake that they did. We don't need to just see them, but we need to see a principle at work here that causes us to ask some questions of ourselves. And here's the principle. If we have an incomplete and insufficient view of who Jesus is, then we'll have an insufficient response to him. If we have an incomplete and insufficient view of who Jesus is, then we will have an insufficient response to him. Based on how we see him will result in how we react and respond to him. So in our text this morning, the people of Jesus' hometown are essentially asking, who does he think he is? Right? They see an identity portrayed in front of them, that doesn't match what they thought they knew. So they ask, who does he think he is? Isn't this the carpenter's kid? Isn't this Mary's son? Brother of James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, his sisters. Who does he think he is? So the first question that we need to ask this morning is who do you think he is? Who do you think Jesus is? Because the way you answer that question will affect, will drive the way you respond to Jesus today and tomorrow and for the rest of your life. Who do you think he is? Do you, like the people of Nazareth, view Jesus merely from an earthly perspective, merely from a human perspective? Sure, you, you, you didn't watch him grow up, right? You don't remember him as little Jesus, but you view him maybe as a human religious teacher, in the same vein as a Muhammad or a Buddha or as Confucius, these wise teachers who were great men, but merely men. Do you view Jesus that way? If you do, then like the people of Nazareth, you're likely to balk at much of what he has to say you're likely to be scandalized by him. Because, you know, you might be familiar with some of the surface things that Jesus said, some of the really familiar stuff, but when you drill down and you start seeing some of the hard sayings, you're gonna ask, who do you think he, who, who does he think he is? Right, when you get past do unto others as you would have them do unto you, you're thinking, yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good. But then you find, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And you think, whoa. Whoa, back it up there, Jesus. Now, who do you think you are talking like that? If you view Jesus from a merely human perspective, then at some point you're going to walk away offended, scandalized, incredulous because Jesus says things that from a human perspective make zero sense. He claims an authority, a divine authority, that no mere man has a right to claim. Is that how you view Jesus, merely from an earthly perspective? There's other mistakes we can make with his identity too, though. It doesn't have to be the same mistake that these people made. But if we make other mistakes with his identity, we'll make other mistakes in the way we respond to him. Maybe you view Jesus as a giver of rules, right? Maybe you view him as a strict taskmaster who gives you these rules who teaches the things that he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, and he's always kind of glaring down at you with a pious and sad disapproval. Oh, he messed up again. Oh, why did she do that? And he's, you know, he's got the arms crossed, and he's just shaking his head every time you screw up. Is that how you view Jesus? As a rule taskmaster? As somebody who's always disappointed that you just can't get it together? If that's the case, you might admire Jesus. You might admire the things that he taught, but you probably won't love him. You probably won't respond in love and gratitude when you see him. He won't be a source of joy like he should. So you need to remember these words. If that's your, if that's your mistake, if that's your incomplete identity, you need to remember, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Maybe you view Jesus as a dispenser of blessings. Maybe like a a cosmic Santa Claus, where as long as you have your good deeds banked up sufficiently, as long as you have your karma all generally balanced out, he's there to give you what you want to make things go smooth, to make life good. And if that's the case, while you might might love Jesus for what he can do for you and for what he does for you, you won't love him for who he is. You'll like the stuff, you'll miss the source. And when things go bad, when times get hard, you'll rage because you'll think he's not holding up his end of the deal. Jesus, I'm following you because you're going to do this stuff for me, and you're not doing this stuff for me, so what gives? We'll be mad that he's not fulfilling promises. You'll be mad that he's not fulfilling promises that he never actually made. You need to hear these words. And Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Maybe you view Jesus as full of love and acceptance for everybody. And he doesn't really care about the way that we live our lives, right? No, that's no big deal. Like, Don't, don't worry about sin or righteousness or judgment or any of that stuff. If that's the case, you probably won't strive very hard for holiness or righteousness in your personal life. You probably won't work hard to kill sin, to be obedient to the things that that Jesus told us to do. You'll probably coast along in blissful ignorance, and you'll brush aside massive swaths of what Jesus actually said in order to stay that way. You need to remember these words that we encountered just a couple weeks ago here in Matthew 13. Matthew 13. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How you see Jesus' identity matters. It will matter forever. So, how do we make sure we get his identity right? We see the dangers of falling into the same trap that the people in Nazareth fell into. How do we avoid it? What's the the cure? What's the the help for getting away from this trap? Well, the help is this. We go to the source. How do we get Jesus' identity right? We go and encounter Jesus as he is right in the source. We recognize him for who he says he is in God's word, and we leave our preconceived notions at the door. I just gave you multiple ways you could miss his identity, right? Multiple incomplete identities you could have in your mind about Jesus that would cause you to live a certain way. Did you notice what I gave you as the remedy for each of those incomplete ideas? It's scripture. It's a passage of scripture where we see Jesus as beyond that simple limited view. We see him for who he truly is. Whether you're a believer or whether you're a skeptic, you might have a partial Picture in your mind of who Jesus is? But are you dig- diligently searching to know him better? To expand that picture that you have in your mind? To know him more? Are you going to seek him in the place that he may be found? Into God's Word, into the Bible? Are you a student of the Word? Are you seeking to know Jesus in the pages of the Scripture? excuse me, does your study of God's word extend beyond what we do here on Sunday mornings? Beyond our community group gatherings during the week? Are you in God's word yourself? This is crucial. This is beyond crucial. It feels like the Sunday school answer, right? Well, of course, just about every sermon could end with you need to pray and read your Bible. But guess what? Just about every text of scripture, one of the implications you can draw from it, you need to pray and read your Bible. The way that we avoid believing lies about God is by knowing what God is really like. And you're never going to know a Jesus that you don't encounter. If you don't go to the word, you're not going to understand what he's like and what he's not like. You're going to have that incomplete picture, the same as the people of Nazareth. And when you have that incomplete picture, you're going to believe things, you're going to do things that are going to take you down a wrong path. You're going to miss the joy that Jesus came to bring. You're going to miss the forgiveness that Jesus came to bring. You need to be in God's word. That's the biggest single takeaway, honestly, from this text. If they made the mistake they did because they knew Jesus in an incomplete way, and we can make mistakes by knowing Jesus in an incomplete way, then the biggest thing that we need to do in response is to know Jesus in a more complete way, and we do that from reading the Word, from going to the source. Now maybe you say, I I need help with that. I don't don't even know where to start. I I just feel stuck. I don't even know what to read, and when I open it, I don't really know what I'm reading. You're in the greatest place you could possibly be. You're right where you need to be. Let's talk. That's what we're here for as your pastors. That's what we're here for as your church family to help you get in the Word, to help you to understand that there are ways for you to expand your knowledge of Jesus. You're not going to go from zero to PhD in New Testament overnight, but it's accessible to you, and we want to help you to do that. There's a great tool. That I want to talk to you about briefly that we're going to put out on our our social media and share with you. Um, If you're looking for a plan, you say, I I don't even know where to begin in the Bible. I want to recommend to you a plan by uh, the old Scottish pastor, Robert Murray McShane. He's long dead, but he's given us something that is a great gift. McShane put together this plan to go through the Bible, and uh, modern pastor and author D.A. Carson has kind of shaped and condensed it a little bit. There's a link right up here. Like I said, I'll send this out uh, on our social media later today. If you want me to text you the link, I can do that. But what McShane put together, is, what this calendar is, is it's going to be two chapters a day from the Bible. Two chapters a day. You could read two chapters in probably about 10 minutes, pretty safely. Two chapters a day will take you through the New Testament and Psalms every year and it will take you through the Old Testament every two years through this plan. It's a great way if you, if you think, I know I need to be in the Word more, but I don't know where to start, this would be a great place to start. And it will be a great tool to help you kind of start to get your feet under you and know what is God really like? What is Jesus really like? So I can respond to him in the right way. And when you're in the Word... And you find something about Jesus that doesn't match your preconceived notions? Are you ready to change your mind? It's not enough just to open the word. Because eventually you're going to find something in the word that makes you think, whoa, who does he think he is? Well, he's God. That's who he thinks he is. And I'm not. And neither are you. So you're going to have to hit a point where you come up against the wall and you find it doesn't move and so you decide I'm going to move. When you open the word and you encounter something that doesn't match your preconceived notion, are you ready to change your mind? Or are you going to be scandalized, offended, walking away in proud disgust? We go to the source. We want to know him for who he is so we can respond to him like we should. And how should we respond to him? As grateful people who have been redeemed by his blood, who have been purchased by his death, and and secured by his resurrection. But this morning, you got to ask yourself the question, who do you think he is? The way you answer that will define everything about where your life goes. Let's pray.